Amen. It's good to be with you tonight, church. Figure out where to put my stuff. I felt like the Lord gave me a, a message to share tonight, and I'm going to introduce it by saying I feel like I actually uh, chatted with a pastor on the phone, and I'm going to let you guys get to know me and then my team. I think that's an important part of what I'm sharing tonight is speaking from the Word, but helping you get to know who is Kevin Hinman, who is this guy, who is this ministry that is uh, connecting to First Assembly, and what are some ministry principles that really connect to who we are and, and this congregation. Pastor Bill explained very clearly that First Assembly has a lot of very committed believers here, that uh, this is not a sit, fence-sitting church. The majority of people here are all in with Jesus. Even the young people got a chance to talk with Steve. So I got some pretty fired up young people who, who want to walk with the Lord. And so tonight I'm going to share from Second um, Samuel with David's mighty men. And we're going to look at keeping courage in your calling. We're going to look at five principles of how the Lord gives courage in challenging times. But I want, I want you guys to get to know who is... Kevin, who is Leadership Training International, there's a reason for that. We have come alongside and we're forming a partnership with First Assembly, and First Assembly is going to be using our leadership program here at the church, and we're going to come alongside you all and help you be not only a church that has a church-based leadership program, but that program is going to be a model for other churches throughout Florida. And we're very excited about that. We're very honored by that. We have spent the last two days immersed in meetings and discussions and prayer meetings. We met with the intercessors yesterday. And I, I have to say, I, I am a blessed man. I get to travel the country and the world doing what I do. And I don't know if we've ever had an embracing welcome that we have experienced through First Assembly anywhere ever. And that, that's a big thing. So I'm going to share about David's mighty men, and I feel like the Lord has allowed me to bring my my three, the, my, my chief three of the mighty men are here in my presence tonight. And uh, and there's, there's a reason why. What we do, what our ministry does, is we provide leadership development for the Great Commission. We, we train church and ministry leaders to be able to be better at what they do, be successful at church planning, be successful at sharing the gospel, expanding the kingdom, and we do it nationally, we do it internationally, and we actually also now have a business version so that we can get into closed countries, so that we can uh, impact the marketplace. And among the team that is with me today, number one, the missionary, Terry Nutter, he oversees all of our growth overseas. He and his wife, Leanne, lived in Africa for years, years, assignments in Uganda, in Kenya, and, and Ghana. They are proven, field-tested missionaries, and they are going to come alongside the team here at First Assembly to hone you guys and help you be great at teaching this leadership program, and we are excited about that. Amen, huh? I have another of my mighty men, and he's actually my accountability partner. Uh, Mickey Salvant serves on the board. Bernard Mickey Salvant serves on the board of LTI, and he is kind of uh, my sergeant of arms, my accountability partner, the watchdog, keeps me to behave, and uh, has a big assignment. And uh, he actually also helps us with the business version. And Mickey Salvant has come from Virginia to be here as well. Amen. And uh, and even though I've known these other two brothers 20-plus years, uh, another guy has joined our team and has immediately become one of our mighty men. And he's one of your own. It's Dominic Rodriguez. <laughs> and, and Dominic is going to be tasked with uh, taking the ministry program across the U.S. Doesn't mean he won't go overseas, but his primary assignment is get other churches in the U.S. to use this program. And he's going he's to travel with Terry, follow Terry all over the globe, and, and help do training there. But, but Dominic's assignment is... Number one, help First Assembly site do excellently, and then also help other churches start the program. 
So in the context of having my own three mighty men in my presence, I, I thought, how fitting is it to share about David and his mighty men? And particularly when I'm in a congregation of Christians who are, who are highly committed believers. So I don't want to share with you a word that is um, for the, the new believer. It's a word for somebody that's been in the battle a while and maybe you've, you've been tested, getting, getting knocked down a little bit and saying, God, I need courage for some challenging situations. So we'll talk about what is courage? What is courage? Very simply, courage is a quality within our inner being that enables you to be strong and steadfast in times of adversity and danger. And, and, and if you're going to talk about courage as a follower of Christ, I think you first have to ask the question, how come so many non-Christians demonstrate great courage in certain circumstances? How can that be? People who are not followers of Christ are modeling sometimes phenomenal courage. Well, and when does that happen? Sometimes it's soldiers on the battlefield. Sometimes it's mothers saving their children from disastrous situations. And, and unfortunately, it can even be terrorists strapping bombs to themselves. Now, how is it that these people have this phenomenal courage? I think the answer was kind of simple. It's because they've completely given themselves over to their cause. Stand between a mother and her child in danger, and she's going to do superhuman things. My wife is a little skinny, 110-pound ballerina, but if you mess with her kids, she turns into the bionic ballerina. There's trouble coming. And, uh, it, and, you know, why do soldiers do superhuman things? Because they've given themselves to their cause. Dominic, I'm sure you've seen that on the battlefield over and over and over again. I had an incredible privilege to, in my journey, I've had a business background. I worked for the government. When I worked for the government, our, our audience, our training audience was E-2 pilots, C-2 pilots. Those are Navy pilots. Sorry, Dominic. Those are not Air Force pilots. Those are Navy pilots. And, uh, and then, and then the, the package that they carried were SEAL Team 2 and 4 into Columbia. We would track the, the drug traffic. They'd find the cocaine factory. And the SEALs would come in, light up the target, blow up the target, and I guess you'd use the word terminate the bad guys. And uh, these men, not all Christians, but I've never seen anything like it, the level of courage and dying to self that these people live by. It is quite a testament. Some very committed followers of Christ, some just courageous men, but they live at a level of courage that challenged me. And so I, I want to get perspective on how can I encourage you to walk in that courage and how can I walk in this courage? How can I get clarity in my life of courage? I would encourage you that a clarity of your calling will give you greater courage. So before I even dive into Second uh, Samuel, I would suggest three things are going to help you have a clarity of calling that will prepare you to live a life of courage for Christ. Number one is living with a sense of destiny. In other words, an eternal mindset. Who do you belong to? Where are you going? What were you born to do what is your life purpose? When you have those things settled, and I would like to think I'm speaking to a lot of young people, when you know what you were born to do, it's easier to be bold, it's easier to take a stand, it's easier to have courage and say, I will not waver. You know, my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 29.11, I know the plans I've made for you, plans to prosper you, plans for a great future. So if you live with a sense of destiny, if you know where you're going, courage comes easier. And then part two is the hard part. I think you have to live with a sense of death or deadness. You have to die to self. Luke 9.23, it's not one of our refrigerator verses. If any man would come after me, he must take up his cross, follow me, and be willing to suffer in my name. Who's in charge? Not my will, but your will be done. 
from John chapter 12, another one of my favorite verses. A grain of wheat must fall to the earth and die, or it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So we need to have a sense of destiny, and we also need to have a sense of death. And then lastly, once you get there, then you just live by decisions. Uh, choose this day who you will follow. Choose to pursue and not waver. Destiny with death leads to decisions, and then God can do phenomenal things through you to accomplish his purposes. Now, that's just a preamble to say I want to talk about David's mighty men in 2 Samuel. And, uh, and in, the, in this message, I want you to get to know who is this ministry that Pastor Bill has graciously said, come alongside First Assembly, come alongside us and provide your leadership training. Uh, we will partner with you. We'll let Dominica try to spread your program. We'll, we'll use our relationships and help you grow. Uh, that's a very kind thing. So I want you to know who I am as the catalyst or the team leader of these mighty men. And I shared some of my story last night. I want to be brief, but my calling has, has, has had to go through this destiny, death, and decision process. And my calling is still in progress. Um, I shared last night that, that my calling really began by going, going the wrong way. And uh, I grew up in a family where uh, both my parents were alcoholics, troubled family, my mom, in particular, was a very severe alcoholic, and when she would drink, she would say nasty things, and she would say, I don't love you, wish you were never born, you'll never amount to anything, and I, I was fairly damaged, I was fairly scarred, and by the time I was in my 20s, early 20s, I lived a very reckless, pagan, heathen, carnal life, drugs, alcohol, and, and promiscuity, I was in a bad way. And that all kind of would come to a head. The story would reflect how my life was going. There was a particular night in 1979 when we found out that my dad was dying of cancer. And uh, he was only given four months to live. And I was angry. My mom had been torturous. My dad had shielded me from that the best he could. And the one who had showed me the most unconditional love was about to die and be taken out. And so I lived a life that reflected a, a not caring and a, and, a, and a harshness. And one night, I was out drinking with my buddies, and we were going down the interstate uh, up, in, up near the Canadian border, in, uh, going west in the eastbound lane. We were going down the interstate the wrong way on the highway in a Shelby Cobra going 100 miles an hour in and out of the cars. And I was the only guy out of five in the car that knew we were going the wrong way. And I can honestly say I did not care. I anticipated we're going to die in a fiery headlong crash. And uh, I was laughing. I was laughing in a, you know, probably a very horrendous way. And the driver, a guy named Bobby Jarvis, says, what are you laughing about? And I said, we're in the wrong lane. And uh, he thought that that meant that we were in the left lane but belonged in the right lane. So he puts his blinker on moves over to the right lane. And I started laughing harder. And he said, why are you still laughing? He said, we're not in the wrong lane. We're on the wrong highway. We're all about to die. And when he realized we were going the wrong way, this was like Starsky and Hutch, the old-time uh, show. He jumped the median at 100 miles an hour, and, and most cars don't survive that. Most people in cars don't survive that. And we jumped the median. We hit the other side. The car came sliding, and, and, and one of the guys passed out. Two of the guys were crying. And I got out of the car, and, I, and this was my first encounter with God. Uh, and again, I, I grew up with no God background. I didn't know any Christians. And I got up, and I looked up in the sky, and I shouted, Is this all there is? Is this it? I can't even die. You, I can't even get killed. What do you want from me? And somehow, at that moment, I knew that God was alive and had a plan for my life. I, I don't know how to tell you that, because I was in a drunken, drugged-up state, but at that second, I knew there was a God, that he had a plan for my life, and it was time to figure it out. Well, I'm a slow learner. It took me, it took me about another year and a half. I started down the journey, and, uh, and, uh, and as I shared last night, a lot of things happened. Uh, my father was having the surgery 
a second surgery and cancer of the lymph system. And uh, this was four months after the incident on highway. And uh, a assembly of God, 80-some-year-old little old lady, came into the hospital, came to the room where my dad was, right before they wheeled him out to surgery. She prayed that the Holy Spirit would touch him and heal him from cancer. And I'm like, wow, what a crazy lady. And uh, never saw her again. They wheeled my dad off. And his surgery went long. It went like 10 or 11 hours. And we thought, this is bad. He's probably died on the table. They've already said he's going to live four months. And the surgeon comes out and gathers our family. And he says, I don't know how to tell you this. I'm like, uh-oh. He said, uh, we opened him up. And we couldn't find the cancer. <laughs> I mean, uh, you, you, you all have seen miracles in your life. But we were told he's got four months to live. He'd already had one surgery. The cancer has spread. We're simply trying to prolong his life for a few more months. We opened him up, and we can't find the cancer. And I'm standing there, and I forgot to mention, the night before that happened, I got on my hands and knees for the first time in my life. I said, God, if you're up there, I want to make a deal with you. That's where I was at with my faith. God, I want to make a deal with you. If you'll let my father live... I will trade my life for his, and I'll live for you for the rest of my life. Amen, I guess. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that was the context of the surgeon saying, I don't know how to explain it, we can't find the cancer. And when he said that, I did not say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I'm going to look what Jesus did. I was like, uh-oh. I have just signed up for something I have no idea how to follow up on. And you ever, you ever make promises to God and then not keep them? And so I tried to pretend I didn't make that commitment, and I tried to hide from God. And uh, then it took about a year, um, and he would pursue me over and over and over again. Um, and I'll just, just share one component. Um, my, my best bud was getting married, and we, he was um, getting married. We were out all night the night before drinking. And we had lost the car. The tuxedos for his wedding were in the car. And so we were hitchhiking about 45 minutes away from where we thought the car was so we could get the tuxedos and get to the wedding. And uh, it's about 7 o'clock in the morning. And somebody picks us up, this kind middle-aged man, and he started to share the gospel of Christ with us. And, and again, I've already made this promise, God, I'm going to follow you. And... Uh, but I'm not really wanting to do that, and so I'm trying to hide from God. And uh, so I, I got very angry and frustrated. I said, stop the car. I'd rather walk. And, uh, of course, my roommate, my best bud, was like, shut up. We need to ride. So we're arguing. And uh, we pulled over. man put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, friend, I don't know what you're so angry about, but God is not responsible for what's happened. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. I don't think I shared this last night. He looked into my eyes and he said, I am going to pray that you never forget this moment until you turn your life over to Jesus. And that really unnerved me. And I spit right in his face. And I said, you Christians make me sick. You need a crutch. You're weak. And I got out, stormed out of the car. And my roommate was like, what is wrong with you? You're an idiot. Because uh, he didn't know all the background of what I was going through. And uh, the next six months went by. I had a lot of places where people, strangers, witnessed to me. And then um, I came to a place where I was broken and I was ready to receive. I shared a bunch of the details last night. I won't tonight. But I came to a place where I took a Bible and I held it up in the air. And I said, God, if you're up there, if you really exist, please tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. And I played Bible roulette. You ever played Bible roulette? I opened the Bible and I stuck my finger down and said, talk to me now. And I placed my finger on Romans 10, 9, 10. Uh, if you believe in your heart, Jesus the Lord, confess with your lips, then you will be saved. And I was like, huh, there it is. And I just said, okay, I'm, I'm believing in my heart now. And I'm literally yelling up to the sky. I'm confessing with my lips. Does this mean I'm saved? And I am here to tell you 
I felt like someone lifted a 500-pound weight off the back of my neck. Praise the Lord. And I knew that I knew that I knew that I was saved, and I knew that I knew that I knew that my future was always going to be connected to following Christ. And, uh, and I, was a, I was a newbie. I was brand new, wasn't church, didn't know how to be a Christian, didn't know how to go to church. And a lot of things had to happen for me to get discipled. And, and about five weeks later, I was ready to graduate. So I'm about to graduate from college, uh, about to start my new life and whatever. And I knew that I wanted to follow Christ. And, and I said, God, I want to honor you with my life. I want to serve you. I think I knew two Bible verses for sure, and maybe three, and I was literally thinking, I wonder if I should move to Africa and be a missionary right away. Uh, Wouldn't you like to have taken me under your wing, Terry? (laughs) Because I was all over the place. And, And so I was praying fervently, God, show me what to do. The college I went to had a... uh, placement system that was awesome, you were guaranteed five job interviews, and they would bring the companies on campus and interview you. So if you didn't get hired within five strikes, kind of, you're bad, you're bad, right? It's on you. And uh, I almost blew it. I I had burned through four, and I was down to my fifth one, and General Electric had come on campus, and they were looking to hire people that had engineering degrees. I did not have an engineering degree. I had a business degree. And, uh, but as I was praying that night, this is the night before my interview with GE, and I wasn't praying, God, give me a job with GE. I was actually praying, should I skip the interview and go to Africa? That's really what was in my heart. And all of a sudden, at 2 in the morning, uh, there was a bright light that appeared in my room, and it was like a blazing fire. It was so bright I couldn't see. And then the Lord appeared to me, or sent an angel, and, uh, I was so overwhelmed, I ran and hid behind the bed, and I shouted, please don't kill me, because I would lived a bad life, and I thought, this is where I have to pay my dues now, and, uh, and the Lord spoke to me, what do you think the Lord said? Don't be afraid. It's pretty biblical, right? Don't be afraid, and as soon as he said, don't be afraid, uh, there was no fear. I was totally at peace. I could see this figure standing in the light. And I said, what do you want me to do? I said, I have a plan for you. I've called you to take my word to the ends of the earth. But it's not time. You're not ready. I need you to learn my word. And I need you to learn to hear my voice. And the journey starts tomorrow. And you'll know when it's time. And it was gone. So I knew that I knew. Holy cow. God has this big plan for me, and it might include Africa, but not right away. And tomorrow, I'm supposed to get hired by this company. That, that was what I got. I went to the interview the next day and had the most unconventional job interview in the history of all interviews. Uh, the guy's interviewing me. He looks at my resume, and he says, you don't have an engineering degree. I can't hire you. And he said, and actually, your grades aren't good enough. I can't hire you. And he said, I'm sorry, son. I think you wasted your interview. And I said, sir, I didn't really come here to be hired for the job that you're looking to hire someone for. I came here because I felt like God has called me to work for General Electric to be placed in your leadership program so that I could prepare to serve Christ and teach uh, Christian leadership around the world. And he looked at me and he said, that's, a, that's an unusual approach. <laughs> and, and it was unbelievable. There's kind of moments of silence. And he, you know, he kind of said, say that again. And, uh, and then he said, this is really odd, young man. Uh, I've been doing this 25 years, and what you need to know is I'm a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. I was not supposed to be here today. The other guy called in sick. I took his place, and I somehow believe God is sovereignly at work here. And son, let me see if I can help you. Picked up the phone. They had a little, they had a little office, and he had a phone right there. He called Fairfield, Connecticut, where their headquarters was. And he called and said, I'd like to place somebody in the IT management track. I hung up. He said, son, we're going to skip the second interview. You're hired. <laughs> so, so my calling unfolded very quickly from there. 
Um, GE placed me in their leadership program, and it was world class, and it was all that you could think of. GE was the biggest corporation in the world at that time, and I went through their training track, and it was preparing me in an amazing way to to lead a leadership organization. And then I had a lot of stuff along the way, but it still wasn't time. I graduated from seminary 13 years after I started working for General Electric. Worked for GE for several years, worked for the government for several years, was an assistant pastor, went on staff with Young Life. I met Steve, and we really resonated over that because Young, I learned more about ministry through Young Life than seminary ever taught me. And uh, it was phenomenal run, but I was completing seminary 13 years after I had completed, uh, after I had started working for General Electric. And on the morning I was to graduate, I got up and was going for a prayer walk, and the Holy Spirit came upon me, and I literally fell to the ground, and all I could hear was this repeating sentence, it's time, it's time, it's time. And I'm here to tell you, from that day to this day, I've been to somewhere between 80 and 84 nations, and who would have thunk it? When I'm driving down the interstate at 100 miles an hour the wrong way, I would not have thought that was in the plan. And God had a plan. My, my calling was in progress. And uh, that was in 1993 when I was ordained into ministry. Two years later, I had a Holy Spirit moment that revealed the leadership program that you guys are about to incorporate here. And then it took another five years before we started working on it. That went for seven years, and it was million dollar project and then we started using it and then it was been about 10 years and it's gone into 40 nations 165 sites and I think we're just getting started amen <laughs> and then and then this year comes and actually around 2014 is that right Terry Terry Nutter joins the team and our international ministries doing this this year, Dominic Rodriguez is joining, joining the team. Our domestic ministry is about to do this. Is that right, Dominic? <laughs> and uh, uh, my calling, just like you, is still in progress. And the best is yet to come. And I'm excited about it. But in our callings, as we're walking the walk, there are going to be moments when we need God to give us great courage. Because it's not going to be easy going to have setbacks, and whether you're 8 to 80, <laughs> if you're a Christian, challenges are going to come, and we're going to need to say, God, give me courage right now. So I want to look at 2 Samuel 23 to verses 8 through 23, and look at five instances when God imparts great courage to his servant. And in this case, the servants are David's mighty men. So we're going to see five times when God gives, pours out great courage, when we face overwhelming odds, when we feel totally exhausted. Anybody here feel totally exhausted? Yeah, that, that's a common one, isn't it? That's a big one. <laughs> I sat with a dear sister today who served us lunch. Are you here today? Um, and, and as you shared what you went through and what your husband, Billy Ray, went through, those are times when I'll bet you were totally exhausted and needed God to give you courage while your pain was dying and there was nothing you could do about it. Uh, we'll see God gives courage. When we stand alone, anybody ever have to stand alone in the face of non-Christian persecution? Oh, yeah. When we face tremendous risk or one of the challenging ones, when there's no reward in it for us, when there's no reward for doing the right thing. And to me, that one comes hard. It's, you know, the only one looking is God. You don't have to do this. But taking a stand for righteousness, as you explained, we're in this church because somebody took a stand for righteousness, right? The other people are not here anymore because they took a stand for righteousness. There was no reward in it for them. But God is still at work. So we're going to look at five instances when God gives great courage. And first is in um, 23.8, when we're facing overwhelming odds. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb, Bashazabeth, that's a shot at that name. 
a Tecumite who was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Overwhelming odds, 800 to 1. His, he defeated 800 men by himself. He demonstrated courage in the face of supernatural overwhelming odds. God uses people who make courageous decisions and face overwhelming odds. They tend to become his leaders. When you take a stand in the face of overwhelming odds, God will raise you up. And he'll get you through circumstances that seem impossible. Uh, That's been part of my journey. We started this ministry back in 92. I had a founding partner who's a dear brother in Christ. He had written a discipleship curriculum that we were using. We edited it. We revised it. We put that into 48 little courses, and we raised half a million dollars, translated that in eight languages, and that went all over the world. Yet my vision was to create a leadership curriculum. The first curriculum was more of a discipleship curriculum, and and we just did not see the same about that. And John left to go do his own thing, took that product with him, took half of our donor base with him, and in the year 2000, after starting a ministry in 1992, we were starting over again day one. With half the resources, with no training program, and just a vision to create a leadership tool. Can you guys relate to that? Sometimes you're starting all over again, and you're wondering, gee, God, I've been faithful for a long time, but this is square one again. That's where we were. And then 2008 comes. I think you all were probably touched by it with the way we were. Our ministry was heavily funded by some major donors. 2008 came, and we lost another 50% of our funding base. So we were working at what was 25% of the financial base we had had back a decade earlier. And, and then we were challenged, what I would call by overwhelming odds, and Mickey walked me through this one, and he will be my brother forever and ever for it. The actual head of the U.S. Navy, retired, came to us and said, I see so much potential in this leadership program here you've created that I would like to go into partnership with you and create a business version use it across the nation and around the world. It's going to be a giant multi-million dollar thing. And it sounded too good to be true. And it was too good to be true. There was only one problem. He wanted to own it and we would work for him. And I think he wanted 85% and we would get 15%. And uh, Mickey, among a couple other dear brothers, said, this is your birthright, brother. Don't give him money. And, and it was this was overwhelming odds. And two of our board members, and this is what leadership is like, they said, no, this is God's answer. It's it's his provision for our future. And some of our best board members went out the door and left because we didn't take the deal. And so we had lost our founding partner in the first tool we had created. We had hit by the financial crisis. And then three of our best board members left, and we're going, hey, God, are you still watching? Are you still there? Do you still think this is a, a viable ministry? And uh, then the Lord intervened. And the Lord began to do things like bring Terry Nutter onto the team. Like a, a local bank in, in our area, $7.7 billion bank, came to us and said, we too see value in what the Admiral saw value in. And we would like to fund the creation of a business version. However, we don't want to own it. We'll let you own it, and we'll pay you to use it. And that became the the kernel of what has become a marketplace leadership curriculum, professional development curriculum that we are now rapidly expanding in many places. And um, the message I learned in the face of overwhelming odds is don't quit. If you don't give up, you'll be harvested. Very, very simple. In times of overwhelming odds, the Lord will give you courage. And um, another very pivotal thing was after the bank had, um, had had sponsored the creation of it, we said, Lord, we need we just need one new customer that will see this. 
and I was actually down in Atlanta, Georgia, and I get a phone call from an old friend who was the head of a, a Christian private school, and uh, he said, hey, Kevin, I want you to meet this new multimillionaire Chinese guy that is interested in, in business curriculum for American and Chinese students, and he's willing to pay for you to create it. And I said, hey, Mark, we already created it. He said, what are you talking about? We hadn't talked in about 10 years. And, and I came home, met with the, the Chinese man, and he immediately installed it in his private school. He immediately installed it in Beijing, getting ready to put it in Washington, D.C. And he was texting me today while I was meeting here, wanted me to fly all over China with him to expand it. And I'm going, look what the Lord did for one reason. We didn't quit because we didn't give up when we were facing overwhelming odds. God gives courage in the face of overwhelming odds. And I firmly, firmly believe that Dominic Rodriguez joining our team to serve you all and help us expand it is part of that overwhelming uh, favor that God has given us for not giving up and for waiting on him. Dominic and I had a, had a, had a, had a similar same mentor, a man named George Myers, he and his wife, uh, dear people, missionaries with Go to Nations, they right here in Jacksonville, and Dominic uh, and I were both mentored by this couple, and they, they were kind of doing the Christian matchmaking thing, saying, there's this guy named Dominic you need to meet, he's kind of like you, short, squatty body, uh, kind of an alpha dog, kind of a crazy man, talks too much, but we love him anyway. And I'm like, my wife's like, hey, he's talking about you. <laughs> and so Dominic and I met, and uh, two months later, we we're working together, and praise the Lord. But in the face of overwhelming odds, God intervenes and gives courage so that you'll reap harvest if you don't give up. Amen? Let's look at the next principle. God gives courage when we feel totally exhausted. Next to him... That was Joshua. Next to him was Eleazar, the son of Dodai, the Abai. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pass Demim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated. I think that's another story itself. But he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to his sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. They showed up and the war was over and they could get the, the, the rewards. Eliezer stood his ground and fought until he was so tired his hand was stuck to his sword. So in the face of extreme fatigue, he continued until the Lord gave him victory. Uh, God uses people who courageously persevere in the midst of great fatigue. Have you ever been in a situation where you're wondering, can I carry on? Can I go one more hour, one more day, one more step? I think I've met a handful of people here that, who've endured those kind of circumstances. Um, 30 years ago, I, and I, I've always been into mentoring. I love mentoring. I particularly love mentoring young men of God who want to who walk with the Lord. And there was this guy I was mentoring. He was actually uh, captain of the Liberty University football team. He was a macho dude. And he and I were backpacking, and, and what I was particularly mentoring him on that backpacking trip was learning to hear the Holy Spirit and to participate in spiritual warfare. That was all new to him. He had just been filled with the Holy Spirit. And he wanted to learn how to engage in spiritual warfare and how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and know what to do. So we were just backpacking in the Shenandoah Mountains, having a wonderful time talking about the things of God. And uh, we hiked up to the side of the, the highest peak in the, in the park, and there was this beautiful waterfall, White Oak Canyon Trail, beautiful waterfalls that fell 90 feet, cascaded down three tiers. And while we're standing there watching the sunset, just having a cool time, we saw a man on the other side taking a picture, and he stumbled and fell into the water and went over that waterfall. 90 feet, boom, boom, boom. And I turned to Keith and I said, oh my God, we just watched a man die. And all of a sudden, we heard an ungodly screaming. His girlfriend was with him, 
And she was screaming, please help, help. Oh, my God, he's going to die. And we went scurrying down the side of that ravine. And she got down there before we did. I don't know how she did it. Because he had fallen in the water, and the current carried him, and then he fell. How she got down there, I do not understand. And we got down there, and she was just screaming this horrible sound. And we got down there, and I'll just tell you what, the Holy Spirit came over me. Because she was screaming, help me! Can you help me? Will anybody help me? And I said, don't worry. God's in charge. He's going to heal him. He's going to live. She looked at me and went, is there anybody else with you? (laughs) I'm not kidding you. And, uh, and, and I looked at her and I went, no, no, really. God is really, he's about to do a miracle. I believe it. I know it. And she's like, well, how do you know? Well, we're Christians. We believe in the power of God to heal. And God's going to heal your boyfriend. And while we're saying that, the water in the pool at the bottom of that waterfall was turning red from the blood coming out of his head. He had broken his skull wide open, and his hip was shattered, and bones were sticking out the side. It it was bad. And uh, I leaned over and put my hand on on his brain and the flesh wound and screamed, In the name of Jesus, live! And the bleeding stopped right then. The bleeding stopped. And I, and I looked <laughs> I looked up. I looked at my friend Keith. And I literally said this. Did you see that? Did you see that? And she's like, hey, fellas, what, what are we going to do now? And I just said, I don't know. God's going to help us. I'm going for help. We were in the middle of the Shenandoah National Park at sunset. And may I add, this is bear country. And, um. And we're at the bottom of a ravine, and we are four miles from Skyline Drive. And I had scampered up the side of the ravine, and I started running uphill because it was uphill to get to Skyline Drive. And about 100 steps into it, I was like, what in the world? I'm not going to make it to Skyline Drive. It's, it's going to be dark in three minutes, and, and this is bear country, and I don't know where I am. And an overwhelming fear came over me. And I just prayed, God, help me. I'm afraid. He's going to die. And this unbelievable peace came over me and said, I'm going to help you. This is going to be a demonstration of my power to you, your friend, and those people down there. And I was like, I'm in. Let's go. What, what do I do now? And the Holy Spirit spoke to me almost like an audible voice and said, go back and, and I will show you where to go. And, and so you got to understand, I'm running up a path toward where the road is, and the Holy Spirit is saying, go back down where there is no path. There is no road. And I went, that's a really bad idea. I'm not doing that. And I kept running, and the Holy Spirit just said, go, son, go back, son, go back. And I was like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. The answer's got to be forward. And, and there was this war raging inside me. And finally, the Holy Spirit said, go back. So I turned around, I jogged down, I wasted about half a mile. And I get to where I was, and there was a little gold sign stuck in the ground that said, um, Ranger Station. And I was like, wow, I should have listened the first time. And I, and I scooted down that, and it was a fire road. It wasn't an actual um, trail. It was a fire road. And I run down there for about another half mile, and I come into a clearing, and there is a Ranger Station with telephone wires coming into. The, this, the, the cabin, and I know the, Lord, the Lord's going to help us. And I, but unfortunately, I get there, and the doors uh, are bolted. The windows have iron bars on them, and I'm tugging on them, and, and I can't get in. And I just stood back, and I said, God, help me. I took a log, and I tried to smash the door. I couldn't get in. And the Lord said, learn to use my power. I said, okay. And I just, I just, the Lord is speaking to me. And he said, kick the door. So I stepped back, I kicked the door, and the door came off the hinges, it was on the floor, and I was inside the cabin. That happened. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I was in, I picked up the phone, I called the ranger, and, I, and he says, where are you? I'm at White Oak Canyon uh, Ranger Station. He said, how'd you get in the cabin? I said, I'll tell you when you get here. And he came in a, in a kind of a... SUV, Ranger, Hum 
SUV kind of thing. And I jumped in the front seat, and he said, how'd you get in? I said, God help me. Kick the door in. And he looked at me weird, and he said, yeah, what else? And I said, well, this here's the funny thing. This man fell over the cliff, went out Canyon Falls. He fell down. His head was wide open. We prayed for him. He stopped bleeding. The Lord is sending you. He's going to get saved, and, and you're going to help us. And he looked at me. He said, no kidding around. He said, I need you to get in the back of the truck. <laughs> and he, he made me go sit in the back because he was afraid I was going to stab him or shoot him or something. And uh, I get to, we rode all the way to the waterfall with him making me sit in the back. And we get there, and, uh, we sit, and then, then the whole spiritual warfare dimension kicks in. And out of the blue, an unbelievable thunderstorm comes up, and the sky opens up, and about a foot of rain fell in about the next 20 minutes. And so now he's likely to drown lying in that pool because the river rose about two and a half feet. And, and, and also, this, this, the bankments of the ravine are slick and all mud. And they had to bring in a helicopter, bring in a basket, and it was very difficult. And I just stood at the top of that ravine shouting at the devil, saying, you cannot have him. You cannot have victory at this. And God is going to show himself, and you cannot have this man. And the Holy Spirit was speaking to me again and said, the spirit of the north is trying to take his life. I had no clue what that meant. The spirit of the north is trying to take his life. And so I rebuked the spirit of the north. And I, I was pretty new at all of this spiritual warfare stuff myself. I was about a week ahead of my friend Keith that I was trying to mentor. So I'm yelling, Spirit of the North, you can't have them. And all the rescue workers are keeping a very big distance from me. And they don't want anything to do with me. They get them in the basket. They, they get them on into an ambulance. They get them to Skyline Drive. They get them to a place called Charlottesville, Virginia. And that man lived. That man lived. And he took 67 stitches right down the this, this center of his head where his brain had been. His brain was hanging out. And uh, uh, we went to the hospital to see him. And, and here's the thing about when the Lord uses you and it's supernatural and you're not among Christians, nobody was giving us credit. Man, so we're soaked to the bone. Our clothes are strewn all alongside the river because we were trying to keep him alive, keep him from getting hypothermic. And they said, Good job, guys. We'll see you later. And I'm like, what? And we jumped in the back of that truck. And I said, wherever you're going, I'm going. Because <laughs> I'm soaked to the bone and my stuff is wet. And they said, well, we prefer you not to come with us. <laughs> and I said, I don't, wherever you're going, I'm going. If I have to sleep in this truck, I'm sleeping in this truck. So he drove us to another ranger location that had a trailer with dead animals in it that was being uh, refrigerated, and we had to sleep in there in our wet clothes. And that was the thanks we got from the world for helping that guy out. So don't always – that could also fit when there's no reward in it for you. <laughs> that, that was happening as well. But the next day we went down to UVA Hospital, and we had, actually had to wait a day to see him. We went in the hospital, and I'm here to tell you that was the easiest person to lead to Christ I've ever known. <laughs> and and uh, we come in, and uh, we're there, and the girlfriend was there, and she, she was totally freaked out. She didn't want anything to do with us. And she basically said, he's not able to see people. And, and you got to understand, Keith was 5'10", 245 pounds. He could squat 600-something, bench press 450. I said, Keith, you keep her company. I'm going to see him. <laughs> And so he's, like, blocking her. And I, you can't go in there. I said, well, talk to you later. I went in there, and he was in intensive care. And in about 11 seconds, he said, what happened? I said, you were about to die, and God saved your life. And, and young man, you need Jesus. Okay, I, I want to pray with you now. He gave his life to Christ. That man went on to become a pastor. But here's the thing. Uh, they were from the middle of Canada. They were from the north. And uh, they, they went back up to Canada. They soon broke up, too. She didn't want to be with him anymore. And he went on to become a, a pastor. And, and I heard from him 20 years later he was still pastoring. Um, and the spirit of the north, which made zero sense to me, was what the Holy Spirit was communicating and was exactly what was happening. But for me, it was all about I was so fatigued I did not think I could run another step, and the Holy Spirit was just saying, 
keep going. I'm going to do a miracle. Don't quit. Don't give up. And I remember yelling, God, help my legs run. I can't run anymore. And somehow he, he sustained me until I got to that ranger station. God gives supernatural courage when you are totally exhausted. Amen? God gives courage when we stand alone. Next to him was Shema, now on verse 11 and 12. Next to him was Shema, son of Aji, the, the Herorite. When the Philistines banded together in a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it, struck down the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Shema stood his ground, as so did Eliezer, a couple verses earlier, and fought when the rest of the army had fled. God honored his stand and gave him victory. So when others are bailing out, do the right thing, trust in God, and stand alone. Uh, one of the most powerful experiences of my lifetime, actually the waterfall one is definitely in the top three, <laughs> uh, but when I was working for the government, I was an editor, and I was kind of the total quality manager. We're submitting 150 lessons to the Navy, and the, the, the liaison between our firm and the Navy, and again, we're preparing stuff that goes for Navy SEALs, the, the guy was a retired Navy SEAL commander. And he was not a godly man. He was jaded by war. He, he had other world religious views. He hated Christians. And he was, I'm just going to say it, he was vile. And he hated me because I was a divinity student at Regent University. And when he found out that I was a Regent divinity student, he looked me in the eye. He tried to... He tried to wear me out for, for a year and a half before this, for a year and a half he said, can you land a jet on an aircraft carrier at night? No. Can you do what Navy SEALs do? No. I will not speak to you again. You will have to always bring either a Navy SEAL with you and speak and have me speak through that man or bring a Navy pilot and I will only let you speak to me through an interpreter because you don't belong in the job here. It was very humiliating. But I knew that this job was preparing me for ministry. I, I had a real keen sense that the Lord was preparing me to write curriculum for the body of Christ. So I took it, and I took it, and after a year and a half, he finally figured out, this, this little stubborn idiot's not going to quit. He is not going to give up. And then he announced to me through an interpreter, through a, an, an English-speaking interpreter who was a pilot, tell him this. I'm going to start rejecting every lesson that this guy submits until his company fires him. And I went back to my boss, and I explained to him what had just happened. And my boss, who was a godly Christian man, I love him to this day, he said, Kevin, I can't help you. His, his rank, his pay rate is above all of ours. He's a GS-14, and, and I, we, we, I can't undo this. If he said he's going to fire you and he stays in position... I, I can't help you. We will probably have to let you go. Now, the only thing different in this story versus Shema and, 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 the, and standing alone was he at least was willing to pray with me about God's intervention. So himself and another brother that worked there, we went to the chapel, and we cried out to God. Now, I prayed very specifically. I didn't pray harm on this guy, Rick, but I cried out, God, I'm asking you to touch his heart. I'm asking you to change his heart. I'm God, I'm asking you to intervene and touch his heart so I can keep this job and that you will prepare me for ultimately my destiny. The next week, seven days from that moment, this retired Navy SEAL who ran triathlons and, and biked and swam for fun, was so physically fit, it was unbelievable, went out to his car, reached to put his key in the, in the door, and dropped dead of a heart attack. Dropped dead in the parking lot, dead before he hit the ground. And the Lord evidently touched his heart. I believe the Lord struck him dead for his blasphemy, for his hatred of God's things, and that the Lord had a destiny on my life, and he was not going to let this God-hater interfere. I did not pray for him to be harmed, but God chose to move him out of the way. And, and 
the, the illustration for me was when standing alone in the face of real opposition that was way above anything I could change, the Lord took care of me. And I worked there another two and a half years, and it was the best two and a half year run of my experience and where I learned the most things to prepare me to be standing before you today. Amen? So God will give you courage when you're standing alone. And then God will give you courage when you're facing tremendous risk. I mean, now 13. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of the duel, while a band of Philistines were encamped at the Valley of Raphaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well, and carried it back to David. David's mighty men risked their lives to bring him a drink of water when he was trapped in the cave of Adullam. God enabled them to break through and retrieve the water. They risked their lives courageously to come to the aid of their leader. Pastor Bill, don't you want guys like that on your team? <laughs> don't you want a bunch of guys like that? Or they're going to they're gonna have that kind of courage? Uh, God gives courage in the face of great risk. Could be failure, might even be death. But it takes God's power to give you that courage. And in our journey, we've had six examples of that. I know Terry could tell more examples than I could. But in 1994, uh, we were forming a pastor's conference uh, and LTI was really just getting moving forward, just starting to do what we were doing. And uh, we had felt led to go down to Cali, Colombia, which in 1994 was the drug capital of the world. It's where um, Escobar had his cartel. And it was we were, to, we were warned this might not be a good idea for you to come here. This is a dangerous place. Uh, but we felt led to go. And the pastor's retreat was held on a, on a mountaintop retreat. And it was, as you looked over the retreat, you could see cocaine factories down below. This was a dangerous place. And uh, there were two different uh, factions, two different groups of Christians, and they were the main leaders of the nation of Colombia. And it was a group of very, all the evangelical churches and all the Pentecostal churches. And guess what? They didn't get along. It was typically over the power of the Holy Spirit. They, the the evangel- evangelicals couldn't trust them. And they were at great odds. And there was not unity in the body of Christ. And that was why we accepted the invitation. We agreed to come and tried to have a time of healing and unity among the Christian leaders in Colombia so that they could stand in the face of persecution from the drug movement, particularly led by Escobar. My and, and this is how foolish and nuts I am. I brought my wife, who uh, we'd only been married two years. She was pregnant for our first child, and I dragged her to Cali, Colombia, the drug capital of the world, to do a pastor's conference on the side of a mountain o- overlooking two cocaine factories. And, uh, and, and God bless she's a lot wiser now. <laughs> she really selects what trip she goes with me on. <laughs> but she, she went on that one in the early days. Yes, dear, it'll be great. And uh, we got up there, and the guy that had coordinated the conference said, hey, here's the deal. If you go down this mountain at night, I guarantee you, you'll be killed. So you cannot go down the mountain at night because uh, they get on the roads. And uh, we were supposed to do some ministry down downtown. And so we did not go down at night, but we went down and stayed in town. And the group of guys I was with were also not wise, and we wanted to go see one of the cartel owners' homes, and they owned property that was really the size of a city block, and they had a big wall around it, it kind of looked like a Walmart with a giant wall around it, and one of the guys with me whips out his camera, and is starting to take pictures of this drug cartel's mansion, and in about 32 seconds, these jeeps come flying up, guys with guns, Uzis to the back of our head, on the ground, and uh, at that time, I had not left my work with the Navy, which, what were we doing? We were tracking drugs in Colombia and sending SEAL teams in to blow up cocaine factories, and all of a sudden, I realized this was a bad idea, and I turned to my friend, and I said, I don't want to talk about it now, but we cannot show them our passports, or we're all going to be shot immediately. 
He said, why would you say that? <laughs> and I said, I'll describe it to you later. But if we pull out our passports, no one will live. And so he pretended that we were um, sightseers, tourists. We did not pull out our passports. He, he spoke Spanish. He stumbled through it. And they let us go. And the next day, well, we were able to minister in the church that night. The next day, we went back up on the mountain. And we had a time of healing, reconciliation, repentance for the, the church leaders. They came together, and they came into unity, and they committed to have a concert of prayer in a soccer stadium. And when they held that concert of prayer, the next week the drug cartel of uh, Pablo Escobar was broken. And, and I know that I know that I know that God had sent us there for that purpose because they had to be unified, and they were not unified. But um, we, we were at great risk there on a couple different occasions. We were at risk to be on that mountain, to go down that mountain, and we were at horrible risk in front of that cartel owner's house, and the Lord intervened and saved us. I, I'd like to believe I'm a little wiser now. We wouldn't make those same mistakes, but God met us where we were at. Then finally, God will give you courage when there is no reward in it for us. Uh, verse 18, Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zeruiah, was chief of the three. He raised a spear against 300 men whom he killed. He, came as fa- he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. He didn't get the title. Be- Benaniah, son of Joahiada, Joah- was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaniah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaniah, son of Jehoiada. He too was famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. David put him in charge of the bodyguard. Two instances where there wasn't reward in it for the the people who did the great exploits. And now there are times in our lives where there's no reward in it, but we just have to do the right thing. That we just need to be courageous and do the right thing because that's what God would expect of us. Um, This example shows us to ask God for courage in the face of no reward trust that he will see you through it. And uh, and my last example from my own journey, I I remember my first start in full-time ministry, I was working for a pastor as the youth pastor and associate pastor, and we were seeing a great revival. We'd seen hundreds of teenagers come to Christ, and the pastor um, was probably the most intelligent man I've ever been around. I looked up to him like a spiritual father. Uh, He had an MBA, he had a doctorate in chemical engineering, he had a professional degree in counseling. Uh, he, he had ed- several engineering degrees, and he was brilliant, and he was a full gospel guy, and he was counseling, uh, marriage counseling at the church. And, and he always kept a, a little security alarm on his office that always was a little red flag for me why he would do that, particularly when he had uh, ladies, women in the church in his office. And uh, one day I needed to talk to him, and without thinking, open, just pulled on the door, the alarm bell was off, and I was in the door, and there he was, in a sex act, and he looked at me, as evil and cool as I've ever seen, and said, what are you going to do about it? And I was completely unnerved, and I simply said, we're going to call an elders league meeting and talk about this. And he said, well, okay, why don't you do that? And before I could make that call, he called and told a different story. And I arrived at the elders' meeting. It took 24 hours for them all to be together. And we came in, and I'm bawling my eyes out. This is this is a man I'd looked up to like a dad in the faith. I, I didn't have a I didn't have a box to put him in. And I was crying. Pastor was having sex with this lady, and and I, I just want to make you aware. I'm an eyewitness to it. And they turned to him and they said, Doctor, what's your uh, response? Size. He says, I treat him like a son. I give him his first ministry job. 
makes up stories like this. I think he wants my job. And um, I'm going to let you guys decide what to do. I got fired that day. I got let go for telling the truth about sin. There was no reward in that proclamation. And so I, I was devastated. And I ended up at this juncture in time I've got three master's degrees. I've got General Electric's leadership diploma hanging in my office, and I had to take the only job I could find, and I'm loading boxes in a UPS truck. I'm in the bottom of an 18-wheeler loading boxes in a UPS truck, and I'm looking up, God, what are you doing? (laughs) Where were you? And I'll be darned, the Holy Spirit spoke to me as clear as a bell in that 18-wheeler wheel well. Lord said, I'm calling you to do something about it. I'm calling you to birth a ministry that stands for integrity and character. You need, you need to make a difference in one church leaders and stop complaining. And LTI, our ministry, was born in the bottom of that 18-year-old truck. And, and I had to go through that to get a clarity on where I was going. And so I had to, you know, have that very painful experience of having no reward for doing the right thing at the time, but God was clearly in charge and clearly working. Especially you young guys, young ladies. Do the right thing all the time, no matter what. And God will work out the circumstances. He will work it out eventually. Do the right thing, and it may not come around right away. It may take a while, but the Lord will have his way eventually. Amen? So very simply as we close, what area do you need God to help you have courage in? Are you facing overwhelming odds? Are you totally exhausted? Are you standing alone? Are you facing tremendous risk? Does there seem to be no reward for you in doing right? Is this an all of the above question? (laughs) I, I would just like to pray for you that God would give you supernatural courage in the face of these tests that your testimony will be like David's mighty man, that you'll see his provision, his power, and his overcoming victory. Amen? Let's pray.